Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending August 13. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you will hear Michelle Laurie, who dropped by to tell us about her new book, CSI Told You Lies. Uh, and Bobby had uh, a talk about taking one for the team. Yep, took one for the team, I did. Uh, we have a chat to James Ashcroft, the director of Coming Home in the Dark, a film coming out at MIF. Uh, and I also talk about my pet peeve, people who cut in line. We spoke to Professor Tim Fletcher from the University of Melbourne about water storage and platypuses. And Dr Viom Sharma rounded out the week, chatting through the latest in vaccine uptake in Australia. Triple R. Michelle Laurie is a comedian, radio and TV personality, author of titles including Bad Buddhist and co-host with Emily Webb of the smashed hit Australian true crime podcast. Her latest book is CSI Told You Lies, giving victims a voice through forensics. And to tell us about it, the writer and self-described true crime obsessive joins us now. Michelle, welcome to Breakfasters. Hey, it's lovely to be here. Oh, thank you for uh, being had. In, in, <laughs> in what ways does this book complement your other true crime projects? Oh, well, it's sort of a, a culmination in a way. I, I guess to say culmination sounds like I'm finishing with it, but I'm not. But, um, <laughs> you know, I just realised that I knew with a lot of these cases, I knew a number of people involved. And so I could sort of tell the story from a number of different angles. I knew investigators, I knew family members. And as of recently, I also knew forensic pathologists who had worked on the uh, post-mortem. So I could, you know, tell it from all of those perspectives. What uh, what strikes you about the pathologists that you find so admirable? Well, they're very humble for one thing and also so so they never talk about themselves ever and they never seek publicity or, you know, attention. And also though, um they they have a very intimate part in the lives of these families and yet no one knows that the families don't know who they are. The families never know who they are. Maybe the families know their names, but some oftentimes they don't even really know their names. Um, and so I found that really striking. And the, But the way they speak about the families and the victims is very moving and very intimate, actually. And, um, yeah, I, I just I thought about the fact that forensics as a concept is really popular in fiction, but we don't really talk about it in reality it's very challenging to talk about in reality I know we, we all know that there's this kind of myth that murder cases get wrapped up in 45 minutes in a, in a story but what other misconceptions do you think there are about forensic other than the fact that you can solve a murder in in 50 minutes or 45 minutes yeah I mean that's easy to sort of brush off but there are other things that are sort of ingrained in our minds that are wreaking havoc with the legal system, which I did not know, by the way, until I met these people. I, I went there to do a web series or to help them with a web series a couple of years ago, and that's when I found out that um, it's it's sort of beyond just a little bit irritating that mm. their profession is, you know, represented or misrepresented on television. What it is is that it, it, these programs, as fiction, has taught us things like uh, that they should be able to tell us the exact time of death and that, you know, DNA should be able to solve everything and things like that. And so that they're finding it increasingly difficult to to deal with juries because juries are, you know, so misinformed that we, because we make up juries, we're, we're not taking their evidence as seriously as we used to. So there are experts who are delivering testimony in court and juries are either discounting it sometimes or making up their own minds about the forensic evidence uh you know and all of these things are, are are really debilitating in a courtroom scenario and they can send people to jail or not you know it's uh it's a problem you spoke about um the tsunami in thailand in 2004 and the disaster victim identification there it mm. god that sounded like such a big job for the forensic pathologist can you tell us about oh. some of the the challenges that they faced whilst they were over there for they were there for three months weren't they well they they there for over 12 months really, right. but they would go in cycles, you know, they would cycle in and out um, for weeks and months at a time because it was just such a big job. You couldn't stay there for the whole time. Okay. You had to come home, you know, obviously and sort of um, decompress a bit and then go back. But yeah, it was an incredibly huge job because we were talking about thousands and thousands of victims. But not only that, they ended up having to 
examine them repeatedly because the administrative, you know, task was not being handled very well. For whatever reason, they found that remains were, were tagged inappropriately, wrongly, basically. And so they would have to just go over it again and again and again, the same remains. So incredibly frustrating. Also, initially, the remains weren't stored correctly. They weren't refrigerated, basically, for some time, for some days at least, if not weeks. So that was a challenge. And uh, yeah, there were a lot of challenges. I mean, the heat, the environment, the fact that the the countries involved, um, you know, were great holiday destinations, but not necessarily set up for, I mean, who is? No one's set up for such a challenge. But yeah, it was a very difficult process. And the mortuary in Thailand was actually a, a, a temple, a Buddhist temple that was transformed into a mortuary. But that process in and of itself took time. So initially, the facilities were n- not great. How do you navigate a story like this without seeming like a nosy voyeur, you know, prodding for juicy bits? Yeah, it's it's hard. Uh, well, I mean, it's 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 much easier when you're working with families, I think, because you know, you, I, I was just constantly aware that they were reading it, and um, so that that I think makes it easier to have better manners and to be sure that I just didn't want to be ashamed of myself basically mm. so you know just to just to know that every single word was going to be read by a family member makes it easier to uh, behave yourself mm. I think and the detectives that you come across and have forged a rapport with uh, what can we learn about them and even maybe as an interviewer is there anything watching hours and hours of tapes of them operating that you've l- learned to sort of admire or observe? Yeah, definitely. The respect with which they treat everybody is fascinating, I think. When you talk to detectives who talk about interviewing just people that the rest of us think are the scum of the earth, and they say, well, sure, but I can't sit there and let him think I think that, Mm. like as if he's going to talk to me. You know, they have to sit there with sex offenders and build a rapport with them. They have to sit there with these people and and make them feel comfortable and confident to speak to them, you know. Uh, so I found that that was a real lesson for me to, to, to learn to put my own feelings aside and um, to make other people feel comfortable no matter what I personally think of them, to encourage them to speak. Um, yeah, I, th- I found that a really intriguing, interesting lesson. And then to watch tape of them interviewing people is is a fascinating, fascinating thing to do, mm. really educational. What about someone who works in the media as you do uh, and juxtaposing that with the meticulous fact-gathering and the, the different threads and maybe counterintuitive uh stories that might come out through police work versus maybe some of the the knee-jerk reactionary declarative statements that we tend to fall into in the media. Yeah, again, it's it's great. It's just such a different discipline because they, you know, great detectives are so much about preventing themselves from pushing a narrative. There's so much about not letting themselves fall into that trap as they see it, whereas we can... Oh, well, I, I can certainly be guilty of trying to craft a narrative as I'm going and trying to push push the other person in this conversation into a neat narrative with me, you know, manipulate a situation in a way, whereas they are really constantly trying to prevent themselves from doing that because they're saying to themselves, listen, I can't do that. I can't allow myself to try and make this fit a narrative. I've got to just follow it. I've got to follow the investigation. I can't be trying to make the investigation follow a script in my own mind. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. It's taught me to try and do that more. To try and follow uh, more in that. You know. You know when you're watching a great documentary and you can see the difference 
between a great documentary where someone is allowing it to unfold mm. and they are following it and then you watch bad reality television where you can see that they've scripted it <laughs> and they're all acting. Yeah. That's the difference, I think. Michelle, what are people like me? I'm a 39-year-old woman. Why are we so drawn to true crime stories? Like I love it on TV. I love it on podcasts. I couldn't put down the book. I knew all of the stories that you were talking about. Mm. What, why are we so drawn to these stories? I think part of it, women are definitely the biggest, uh, you know, consumers, I'll say, because I, I hate saying fans, but you know what I mean, consumers of true crime. I think a big part of it is the fact that from the day we're born, we're told we will probably be victims of crime, yeah. whether that's true or not. Um, you know, we're pro it's probably not true, really, statistically, but we're told that, that, you know, uh, we're vulnerable if we wear certain things, if we act certain ways, if we say certain things, we're always, we have it drummed into us. And I think that when we're watching and listening and reading true crime, generally the victims are women. And so we're looking for clues, I think, of, yeah. oh, how would I do that? Would I, not that we're victim blaming, but we're thinking about, yes, oh gosh, I, I could do that. I could make that mistake. I could, or that could happen to me. Or could I make a different decision could I zig where she zagged or you know if I'm in that situation I must remember you know it's it's almost like research or something I, th I think that's honestly a big part of it but yeah. also psychologically they're oftentimes just fascinating stories sometimes sometimes there are crimes that I think gosh I, I could do that if I were pushed in that direction uh, you know, yeah. there's human nature too. The, the element of human nature is fascinating. I've read of uh, autopsies being performed in hotels at the start of Melbourne before we had a <laughs> morgue and uh, stuff like that. But mm. the the recent history of the Flinders Street extension was Oof. quite shocking. Wasn't well, it the extension? I got fascinated <laughs> by the <Yeah>. extension because <laughs> the older coppers, when they started out, you know, the extension was the mortuary, and it's just so crook, isn't it? It's um. Just the worst. It's it's like, I mean, you could hear and smell the autopsies being carried out while you were sitting in reception waiting to go in to see an inquest or be Jeez. part of an inquest. And in those days, and I'm talking about the 80s, by the way, 70s <laughs> and 80s, um, in those days there were a lot of inquests. A lot of normal families were called in for inquests just after car accidents and all sorts of things. So, it you know, a lot of people went through this awful process of finding themselves in this terrible place and the police talked about you know forensics just was not a very respected thing in those days it wasn't very good to be honest I don't think the the police say it wasn't that helpful to them they did a lot of stuff themselves Ron Idles talks about him and his boss going in and kind of doing their own investigations because the forensics dude wasn't that interested um, in helping them he didn't know how to put a an x-ray up on the mm. screen properly um, Roland Legg legendary old homicide copper talks about taking i mean remains out into the driveway and hosing them off mm. to have a good look at them it's crazy and 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 there were builders next door building what is now the world trade center in the city and and they complained about the smell and went to the union and <laughs> like and went on strike and stuff crazy. You go behind the scenes of some really high profile cases that a lot of people will be familiar with in Australia and in Melbourne. Mm. If there was one thing that you learnt from talking to the people that worked on one of these cases or the families that you'd want to share, which one would it be and, and what would it be? What was the thing that sat with you the most that you kind of found and went, that's, I'm really glad I discovered that and, I, and I'm glad I get to share it. Oh, lots. Uh, I think every, I think there's something just to be learned from all of them. I think the thing about um, working in true crime that I like actually is that meeting families who have experienced crime, victims of families, is they're just so raw and you're just meeting people at their, just at a really special place, I'm going to say. Like, they're just very special people. And, um, you know, when you meet Carmel and Brian Russell, for example, who are now in their 70s and their youngest daughter was murdered oh, in the 90s, um, there's just something, I don't know, very, very upfront about these people and you're just meeting them, I don't know, in a very raw place and they're just good people 
and the conversations you have with them are incredible incredible you learn so much from them and they have five other children they say look you know we had to keep living for them and they wanted Nat to be remembered their daughter to be remembered that's their main thing and they actually are so proud that the track that she was murdered in in Frankston is named after her Nat's track that's what it's called in the Melways is what her mum says Carmel it's so beautiful the Melways and she's really proud of that and for a lot of us that would seem like a terrible memorial but to Carmel and Brian that's really special because it's not just where she died it's also where she grew up walking that track with her parents running it with her dad you know so there's so much. The Maslins in that book, you know, Rin and Maz, who lost their children in MH17, who made a decision to keep living because they said, okay, we're here now. We're still alive. Let's dedicate every day to those kids. Let's see what we can do with the rest of our lives and dedicate it to those kids. And then they had another baby because they said, well, we're parents without children, so we should have a baby. Mm-hmm. You know, they're so thoughtful and deliberate in everything they do. I mean, you can't not take something out of talking to those guys and thinking about the way they live their lives. The book is CSI Told You Lies, giving victims a voice through forensics. It's out through Ebjury Press, an imprint of Penguin, and we've been speaking with author Michelle Laurie. Thanks so much for chatting, Michelle. Thank you. Triple R. I played in the uh, Victorian Women's Football League uh, for about 15 years. Uh, I had my last game maybe about six or seven years ago, something like that. So anyway, um, and I, I used to play for uh, the Spurs, the VU Western Spurs, played there my whole career. Um, and look, I, I used to love it and I you know, took it very seriously, but towards the end of my career, you know, I probably didn't take it as seriously. And and when we had uh, when we had games, there were a couple of occasions where I went out the night before, which was frowned upon by the senior team. You know, you got seniors and you got your reserves. Reserves, perhaps you can go out and have a couple of drinks. But seniors, I mean, there are not only two teams, but there are also a dozen people that are missing out on a game. So if you get named in that team, you've got to take it seriously and don't go out the night before. Anyway, uh, this particular day was towards the end of my career and I went out the night before and I'd had a bit of a bigger night than expected, which (laughs) for some reason happens quite a lot for me. Um, (laughs) And I I was on my way to the game. It was a beautiful day, but it was the last game of the season and we had to win to make finals. And I was very, very hungover and oh, I, I, stopped, I stopped at a servo um, to try to get something to fix my, my issue. Uh, so I got an orange Powerade and a protein bar. I'm not sure if you've had a protein bar before, but it's the worst thing Did you, get you could eat. Protein bars that have like that strange collagen aftertaste. Oh, I think all of them have that. Don't like they're just horrendous. Oh, I really struggled to finish one of those. It was. I mean, I didn't. I had half of it. It was like eating a wheat bix. It was just dry oh. and terrible. The worst thing that I that I could have had. Anyway, I get to the game and uh, and everyone is up and about and uh, and one of the girls, uh, one of the women that were playing in our team. Now she was injured on Friday night, so they didn't name her in the in the team, but she was our best player, and that is Karen Paxman. Now I'm not sure Karen Paxman plays for Melbourne Football Club in the AFLW. She's been named All Australian all five seasons in AFLW. Her and Emma Carney, the two only uh, players that have been named All Australian every time, absolute superstar. So she was not named in our team because she was injured. But then on the Sunday, got to the game and I saw her chatting with the coaches and they were all, they were a little bit, they weren't sure how to approach this. Um, She was actually fit, but they didn't want to drop anyone from the team because everyone really wanted to play and everyone put in everything, right? So I I went over and one of of my best mates was a team manager and she's just like, are you okay? (laughs) Like, oh God, I am not good. I said, what's happening over there is... Is Paxman okay to play? And she goes, oh, I don't know, good luck dropping someone else. Though. Like everyone really wants to play and we've got finals coming up. I was like, oh, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe I'll put my hand up. And she goes, you wouldn't play? I was like, God, that's, I really and don't say anything, but I'm so hungover today. <laughs> I feel like absolute crap. This is like a dream for me. Like I could, I, I could just put my hand up. And she's like, yeah, go talk to, go talk to the coaches. So 
I pulled up one of the coaches, uh, Debbie Lee, who was a founder of the club, and she's like a pioneer in women's football. Um, the AFLW best on ground in a grand final is called the Debbie Lee Medal, like big, big name in footy. Anyway, I pulled her aside. I was like, hey, Deb, um, what's going on? Is, is Paxman okay to play? And she's like, oh, yeah, look, don't worry about that, Bobby. That's not a, it's not a problem for you. We're, we're working it out. But, you know, she wasn't named in the team, so that's fine. No, no one's going to miss out. We, we, we wouldn't do that. I said, well, I mean, if you need a spot, I'm willing to put my hand up and you can put her in for me. And she goes, oh, Bobby, I couldn't. I couldn't ask that of you. I go, no, you're not asking. I'm offering. (laughs) She goes, oh, no, no, no. Are you sure? I go, go, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Oh, no, 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 are you sure? (laughs) She was a superstar, right? And then so she goes, oh, no. And she kept saying, like, I don't want to do this to you. I'll chat with the coaches and I'll see what the coaches say. So she goes over. She was assistant at the time, I think. She goes over, has has a chat with the coaches, and they're just like, oh, my God, this is brilliant. This is going to save all our problems. And uh, the head coach comes up to me. He's like, now, Bobby, we we would never ask this of you. I said, no, 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 I get it. I I want her to play. I think she will make a big difference to the team and I don't mind stepping aside for this. And he's just like, that is very selfless of you. Um, We'll we'll have a chat and we'll come back to you. I'm like, okay, no worries. Anyway, they decided to do it. They brought the team in and they were going to just let the team know. So I'm sitting in the corner, everyone's getting ready and I'm just sweating out all the alcohol from the night before, (laughs) struggling, right? And uh, Deb gets up and she does this big speech and she says, now today one of your teammates has done something very selfless. One of your teammates has put her hand up and put someone else before herself, which is, you know, I, I wouldn't expect that from anyone. She's like, I don't think I would do this, but she has put her hand up and allowed Karen Paxman to come into the team today. And everyone was relieved, but at the same time didn't want to let their spot go. Like, because everyone's like, oh, God, we need her in the team, but yeah. I'm not giving up my spot. Anyway, she does this big speech, and everyone's like looking at me. She goes, so each, each and every one of you need to go up to Bobby, and you need to thank her for her selfless act today of stepping down and making way for Karen Paxman in the team. And I was like, I go, oh, no, Deb, please, no. <laughs> she goes, no, no, Bobby. Everyone... Make sure you go up to Bobby today and you thank her for what she has done and just made me out to be this martyr, right? And so every single player, as if I, I was already feeling guilty and then every single player came up to me and, like, said thank you and was shaking my hand and hugging me. I was just like, oh, my God, get away. This is a horrible feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Karen Paxman goes out, gets best on ground, we win the game and we're through to finals, right? And I don't know, I was so torn with emotion. I felt so guilty yet so proud of myself for putting my hand What a heroic hangover. Right. Right. I mean, the true hero of the day is me. Yes. Right? Yeah. And the orange parade and the protein bar (laughs) hunched over. (laughs) Thank me later, guys. I'm a champion. It's a really epic version of a friend cancelling on you at the last minute and being secretly happy about it. <laughs> yeah. It was a dream come true. Uh, uh, Paxman actually won a, a drink card at the end of the game uh, to drink at the bar and she gave that to me. So uh, so I learned my lesson <laughs> and you need. backed it up. <laughs> Had a good day. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. James Ashcroft is a director, screenwriter, producer, actor and formerly artistic director of multi-award winning Maori theatre company Taki Rua Productions who has made his feature film directorial debut with Coming Home in the Dark. The New Zealand thriller received rave reviews at Sundance and screens as part of MIF and to tell us about it the director joins us now. James, welcome to Breakfasters. Good morning, how are you? Yeah, Lovely to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. This incredible film so you've adapted it from a short story you optioned 10 years ago tell us about the tale that you've uh, brought to the screen here yeah coming home in the dark um uh, based on the short story by owen marshall is about um it's about the perfect family picnic that gets interrupted by two men with a rifle and uh things things get worse from there um in adapting the short story though uh what we've been able to do eli kent who's the co-writer with me what we've been able to do is to weave in certain sins of this country's past um, to, to to draw out their characters and and the plot itself and um, address some of the more topical themes about that long shadow that state institutions in this country and all around the world still cast over our society. Mm. 
And you've put a lovable everyman, Eric Thompson, really through the ringer here. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed every minute of it. Too. I'm not sure he did. <laughs> no, uh, he, he, Eric's, Eric's great. And look, I, I, I cast him in that role because he's sort of one of our, one of our shared best, I'll say, and Scotland's as well, because he is a Scotsman. Um, but, you know, he's so reliable, he's so lovable and relatable, and um, I do, with him in that role, we would be able to open up a kind of tricky space for the audience once the plot starts to sort of move forward and things and layers are revealed. Uh, what's it like on set? Uh, you know, you hear with comedies that, you know, there's lots of laughs. This is a very tense film. Is it ever tense on set? Do the actors... Or is it separate? What makes it uh, onto film? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, look, I, I have to say, despite I, I mean, I, I I try and run a, a light set. Um, you know, you can be heavy in the work, but but keep the the, the work um, light on its feet and nimble, and look after people. So, I have to say, I mean, you know, there was with some with some actors that you know would do a take um you'd need to give them just their space to prep and everything. and then there were other actors who were you know going through the most sort of traumatizing emotions and and you'd yell cut and then um you know Midiama McGall in particular you should be telling me a dirty joke you know <laughs> two minutes afterwards so it was um but that, but that's because we had a space, a really great space of trust, and and we were moving so fast. And the material, as I say, is um, you know, it's con- confronting in parts. So you you just need to give people what they, the space they need, but also maintain that what we call monarchy, um, looking after people on set and having a good time because we all love what we do. Mm. You're uh, an actor yourself. Does that what effect do you think that has at risk of blowing your own? Uh, trumpet here um, <laughs> in relating to the cast you know you hear of other directors describing actors as like meat puppets but how do you think having that background that you have helps you in the directing role yeah well, well I mean if, if, if actors are considered meat puppets I had the best four cuts that one could <laughs> find in, a, in an acting butchery um, look I mean I'm I, I moved away from acting uh, because of my love for directing but um, and, and I've loved never loved the craft of acting more since um, actually uh, becoming a director behind the camera but I, I, I think I just know um, how to give actors their space um, you you want to provide an environment that allows them to feel um, encouraged, enabled, and free, um, and you know, really trying to get them into that place where they can literally feel free to fail in their exploration. Because what, whatever they think they're failing at is potentially incredibly profound and, and useful to the film itself. So, um, I think just you know, the big thing I've learned, and this is probably from working with more bad directors and good directors previously myself, is what not to say to an actor and when to step in and give them what they need and just being mindful of that. They've got to, they've got to you know, once the cameras are rolling, they're the ones in charge. Mm. James, I, I watched this movie and I was absolutely terrified. Um, <laughs> in a Thank good you. way, though. In a good way. Um, it, it reminded me a little bit of Wolf Creek in that it's the most terrifying thing is that it could happen to you just doing something that you love, like going on a picnic. Is, is that what you're hoping the crowd, uh, the audience, will, will be terrified by watching this? Yeah, I hope. I, I hope uh, you know they are terrified initially, and that is that is the way into the story for us. It's um, yeah. New Zealand as Australia is. It's a great place of, of beauty, but it's also it can be incredibly imposing and, and isolating in in big wide open spaces. But um, you know, it's it's also it's a story that comes from our land. So um, you know, it's uh, it, it's. There's beauty there, but actually, if you dig beneath the surface of our land and landscape and society too, there's actually some far worse things in our history um, than being set upon by a pair of murderous drifters. Yeah, uh, Mandrake is described as an enigmatic, enigmatic psychopath. What do you think are the ingredients that make a memorable villain? I think uh, I think it's essential that um, you you get a glimpse into a personality that you start to relate to in some respect or have empathy for. That's that's 
that's the key for me is is a is a a protagonist or or an antagonist who you start to go okay I'm I'm starting to adopt a little bit of this person's worldview or perspective and I'm I'm leaning into that and then as an audience member you start to question yourself and why um, you know you also put you know an actor like Dan Gillies in that role who's incredibly engaging and um, you know attractive and and charismatic uh, you start. To, you know, he's easy on the eye and ear, and you start to be convinced by his motivations. And I think that's a really great space to put an audience in when they start to, you know, reflect and question their own morals a bit. So it's based on this iconic, is probably not overstating it, the short story by Owen Marshall. Has Owen seen the film? Yes, he's seen it twice now. He was, um, he was at the um, uh, premiere last night. Um, uh, and look, Owen's been nothing but supportive. He was um, had so much faith in in the project and sort of letting me option it. Um, and and just he said, you know, go forth, do do what you must do. And I hope I hope it comes about. I'm working on another adaptation with Eli Kent of an Owen Marshall short story, um, another dark number. So. He hasn't pulled that off the table, so I'm taking that as a good sign that he's happy with the first outing. Brilliant. Uh, and so, Melbourne audiences, where what can we do if we want to see Coming Home in the Dark? Um, Miss, Miss uh, has moved online and um, is still going, so um, you know it's a really damn shame that we weren't able to be there in person and see it with Melbourne audiences, but you can still go online with Miss. And then the Australian release, the wider release, will be happening in September through Monsters, uh, Monster Pictures, who are our distributor and have been incredible um, advocates and champions of, of the film. It couldn't have been made without their support. Brilliant. Head to myth.com.au for more details. Uh, the film is Coming Home in the Dark, and we've been speaking with director James Ascroft. Thanks very much, James. Hey, thank you. A real pleasure to speak to you guys over there. Thank you. Have a lovely morning, James. Yeah, you too. Take care. Bye. Triple R. I'm not sure about you guys, but one of my biggest pet peeves is people that cut in line. Yeah. I think it's so inconsiderate to all the people that are waiting. Um, I've, you know, when you're at the supermarket and, like, if you're – I don't see it too often at the supermarket if I'm there during the day. Um, like if, if I'm shopping and my partner's going and getting something else and I'm at the front of the line, if she comes in, we're still buying everything together. You know what I mean? So I feel like that's a little bit different. If, if you're purchasing something with that person, fine. Yeah, um, but you have to make a big show of it, like lean in for a kiss. <laughs> oh, what did you get? See, everybody went together. Yeah. <laughs> I'll pay this time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I was at uh, I was at an AFLW game once, and the line at halftime to get a beer was significant. And I had waited a while, and you know you do what you do. And I had a couple of mates walk past, like Bobby, and had a bit of a chat and a yarn and stuff. And then they kind of go, "Oh, can you can you let us in?" Aww. I went, "Oh, the chat and cut." And I and you know what? And I am just so like I absolutely not. I go, "Oh, mate, I, I can't." And they couldn't believe it and I could see the person like behind me in the line like going yep just nodding their head like yep uh uh-huh like everyone everyone else is waiting Uh, and they're like really I was just like yeah mate I'm sorry that it's just one of my biggest pet peeves look at all the people and they're like yeah that's why we want to cut in I said absolutely not I'm sorry you're gonna have to go to the back of the line so they I mean they weren't close friends even if they were that's good no they weren't close friends it was just kind of now they're enemies well well, I haven't spoken to them since (laughs) (laughs) But they went to the back of the line. But I remember um, this was a while ago, and uh, I, I'd had a I'd had a night, and afterwards I went to get a, a kebab, and there was a line at the kebab shop, and there was probably I don't know about five people waiting, um, and then these two drunk guys came in really loud and just went to the front of the line and like put their arm over the girl that was at the front. It was Aww. like they're like, oh, you mind if we we jump in here, sweetheart? You don't mind? We're just jumping in, and of course. She, she felt so uncomfortable and she was just like, yeah, no worries. And mm. I, you know how I feel about lines. <laughs> and after a couple of drinks, I had just said, excuse me, <laughs> we got a line going here. And they're like, oh, shut up, you, whatever. She let us in, didn't you, sweetheart? You let us in. And everyone's kind of, they were just drunk and loud and obnoxious. Yeah. But you know what? So was I at that time. <laughs> so I just said, yeah. 
and we got a line. So get to the back of the line. Anyway, they arced up and then thankfully uh, the must have been the owner of the, the um, kebab shop, he come out and he just said, you heard the lady get to the back of the line oh. and then everyone cheered and then they walked out, they swore and they cracked and whatever. <gasps> and I tell you what, that was a highlight of that night. I should have walked out mm. but instead I got a kebab yeah. and felt horrible for it afterwards. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> I can't That's believe. Amazing. That's how obnoxious. Yeah, oh. but I believe it. Oh, totally. Oh. And I think I've had other times when I've seen things and I'm just like, oh, I just can't be bothered. But that night I was like, uh-uh, absolutely. But it could have gone wrong as well, just like I guess any confrontation. But... I feel like if if I'm standing behind somebody, say I'm second in line and I'm giving them space mm. because you don't want to be right mm. up yeah. them, uh, then someone third comes in. But I'm giving them so much space, mm. they think I'm not part of a line. Oh, and you go, oh, no, oh no, I'm. Oh, it's me. I'm actually. Well, yeah. <laughs> and so then I'll like shuffle forward sometimes, but then I feel like I appear threatened by their like. Don't get in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, no. And I'm like, I'm like, abstra- um, what I'm contaminating the civilian spirit mm. of the venue by, you know, getting territorial. I think that happens around ATMs, like when you're standing oh, and you try, you try and give oh, space. Because you have and, to have space. And people just come in. It's like, oh, no. Do you, yeah, sometimes I say things, sometimes I'm just like, oh. Whatever. Where do you stand? Like where are you supposed to stand? Because if you're the behind one, you're in a footpath. If you stand mm. at the on the gutter, people don't even know that you're there yeah. waiting. No, you do an L shape, don't you? You can't go off. To, I mean, when was the last time I used an ATM? Who can Yeah, say? I know. But, <laughs> Mm. But But when you say an L shape, you mean against the wall, against the ATM wall? Yeah, but not too close. Yeah, not too close. But then you're just against the wall. Well, that's right. And you're staring at them. uh, You could turn the other way, but then you might get undercut from the other direction. This is why I don't use ATMs. Make an announcement. (laughs) I'm in line to anyone that walks past. I'm in line. (laughs) I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. I'm not looking at the pin Mm. number. Not the pin number. I can't believe I nearly said pin number. (laughs) I I feel like it feels like because I have the the bad combo of hating it, hate when people do it, Mm. but never have the courage to say anything. Yeah. So I would just stand there fuming. Yeah. And be like, mm, 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 but they're not actually, you know, not take the, not take the. Yeah. I, don't, I think a lot step. of people do that. I do that as well. Like if, if I'm, I wouldn't always say something. Um, but yeah, you do. You had to think, have had a night first. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm the same where you kind of just, and shake your head kind mm. of a thing when people yeah. do the wrong thing. You know what I hate when I go to um, the deli? And no one is there, so I'm just waiting. Mm. And then all of a sudden, five people come and start taking the taking tickets. Taking number. I'm like, oh no! Yeah, that's... <laughs> that wasn't a thing. There was no one here. Oh, that's life. I'm, I'm. If I've been in that position, and I just go fair cop. <laughs> should have like, taken. Should have taken, taken a, a butcher's ticket. Yeah. Uh, one thing I uh, <laughs> do worry about is when someone is with me. And I have I get cut in front of. Sometimes, if if I'm on my own, I'll just pretend to myself that I'm just patient and forgiving. Mm. But if I'm being observed by a family member or a loved one or whatever, then it's like, what are you doing? Mm. You gotta stand up for yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna let them walk all over you, Daniel. <laughs> Be confrontational. And, uh, so, oh. but yeah, I do. I tend to. I mean, I've been at bars, and we're talking forty minutes, and then I'll pretend that it's a game that I'm playing on myself. Oh, how uh, how long can I be denied service <laughs> before I lose it entirely? It's a fun, fun game. Yeah, it is a crap game. Oh, and then a baggage carousel. Oh, uh, but then if your bags there, your bags there. Like that's not really your line. Those are just people in a you know cluster, right? Well, like they can't cut in front. Like you, you know, they can only you, move when their bag arrives. You're there's right. people that are just at the front of it. Is that what you mean? Yes, but if there's a meter or two, mm. then that creates a, a corridor for yeah. everybody. Yeah. Like, why isn't that bog standard? Mm, they need to put those. Or is it? What would happen? It would. What? Yeah. What if there was tape? Because there's no tape. No, One thing about a, the 
There's like, a border. There's like a line painted. Because I remember last time I was at a baggage carousel like 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, After leaving the ATM. <laughs> yeah, getting money, I had to buy some cassettes. <laughs> the, I remember from, it was taking ages for the baggage to come out. It was a long-haul flight and this old guy was standing there and he told a woman off, a young woman off, for crossing the line. He said, can you stand back, please? You're crossing the line. Oh. And it's just the line that's closer to the baggage carousel. And she was a bit like, oh, so, like, didn't know what I was doing. Bleary-eyed. Uh, stood back. And then he crossed the line and oh. just pushed in front of Is people. Is that for real? Yeah. And Will and my partner and I were standing there thinking, oh, I would love. And as we walked off, Will said, you wanted to step back from the line, mate? Oh, <laughs> beautiful. But he was so bamboozled, he didn't, didn't know. Bit of sass. Yeah. I'm enjoying uh, night. I'm seeing outside nightclubs tape. Uh, to keep people separated. Uh, I do like that, just in any line, because people do get close. So I'm appreciating those dots that they have in supermarkets and lines everywhere. Yes. Mm. Take it out of my... So there's two schools of thought. One is, good, take it out of our hands. Mm-hmm. Um, you can shepherd us. The other alternative is, if they're not standing on the dot, then mm. the fury starts to build. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> on your dot. <laughs> <laughs> on your mark. <laughs> Ah, that's right. Triple R. Four feature creatures this week. We're joined by Professor of Urban Eco-Hydrology at the University of Melbourne, Tim Fletcher. Morning, Tim. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. It's our pleasure. I'm, uh, I'm jealous that you get paid to contemplate platypuses as much as you do which is it's they're not platypuses which we erroneously referred to them before uh what's the story well actually the first thing i'll say is the number one question i get asked about the platypus is what's the plural of platypus? <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> so, so you're not the only one and i hadn't heard the platypuses <laughs> um yeah actually i think you're right to be jealous this is a fun project um we so our team, the Waterway Ecosystem Research Group at Melbourne Uni, we've been working for years on the impacts of stormwater. Uh, so it sounds like super boring topic, but um, if you're something that lives in a river, you don't like it because every time it rains, you get this whack of water coming off all the roads and roofs and other kind of you know hard surfaces, and that water is typically polluted, so uh, not good for you, and washes all your habitat away. Uh, but then when it stops raining, because that water hasn't soaked into the ground and slowly, uh, you know, trickled its way towards the stream, it then goes dry very quickly. So really hard life being a platypus in an urban stream or any other organism in an urban stream. Anyway, we um, – so we've been trying to do lots of lots of uh, things to help with, with that for years. Um, but at the same time, we're working with uh, – and so we've been doing that work mainly with – uh, organisations like Melbourne Water uh, and Yarra Rangers Council and quite a lot of other councils. But at the same time, we were doing this other pretty kind of nerdy project with Southeast Water, um, and they've got a big focus on developing sort of new technologies. And we were working with them to develop this uh, thing called Tank Talk, where um, uh, you could have a controller on your rainwater tank that, for example, if it saw a huge rain coming because it's receiving data from the Bureau of Meteorology – it would slowly release some water from your tank so that when that storm came, your tank didn't overflow out into the stormwater network to try to reduce the risk of flooding. And um, uh, we were helping them sort of get the maths of that right, I suppose. And then we started saying, hang on, couldn't we bring these two things together? Couldn't we try to design, you know, change the algorithm so that – uh, it's probably too early in the morning to say algorithm, but anyway, um, uh, couldn't we try to change that so that rather than just uh, reducing the flow before a big storm, we actually try to release water into the uh, stream network in an optimal way for organisms that live in there? And straight away, um, our minds go to platypus, such mm. a beautiful, iconic, cute species. Um, although I, one defecated on me many years ago, and I've never <laughs> forgiven it. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, and so we started working with uh, our ecologist colleagues at Melbourne Water and within the university. So, well, when when do they need what amount of water, et cetera, and can we design a, a network to do that? 
And it was one of those sort of stupid ideas, but the more we thought about it, the more we thought, oh, this could be serious. And so we put up a, wrote a big proposal to the Australian Research Council, and they seemed to like the idea too. Uh, and so our idea is we'll actually work with householders in this um, catchment, this uh, Monbol Creek, where all the water from there flows into the creek, and we will offer to householders the chance to have a rainwater tank. That's a bonus, so they get to use the water the way they normally would. But we'll also be able to release a, a certain amount from those tanks slowly into the waterway, and we're going to use a couple of other big water storages that are in that catchment, Belgrave Lake and Monbulk Creek uh, Retarding Basin, um, to really try to deliver this perfect, you know, optimal flow uh, for the platypus. Our idea is uh, for the platypus, a really critical time is around autumn. Uh, that's just when they're building up to breeding and uh, the female platypus needs to take on a heap of calories in that period to be, you know, well set up for breeding. Um, and so if we can make sure there's optimal flow, that means there'll be lots of good um, macroinvertebrates or bugs mm. in the water at the time they need to be chowing down and um, they'll be, you know, well set up to breed. So, yeah, it's it's pretty fun, actually. That's brilliant. Mm. What a great initiative. And is there anything about the a platypus that or you know when the the mothers and the the care for their you know baby platypus is there anything about this project that helps platypus in particular as opposed to other animals uh look that's a that's a great question um our in some ways the the platypus is the kind of icon for this project but really we're interested in the whole waterway ecosystem and I don't know if you remember back to kind of, you know, year nine biology, but that sort of food, food web idea that if we can make the bugs healthy, uh, and so by proving the flow and the water quality in the stream, we can make the bugs healthy, then we can make those things that feed on them, like the fish and the platypus, et cetera, uh, healthy, et cetera, so we can make the whole uh, system uh, healthy. But um, I suppose our focus is we know how platypus go hunting for food and when they go hunting for food. They, if, if platypus was filling out the census on, on Tuesday night, they would have, uh, you know, they, there was that question about how many hours a, a day you spend, you know, doing work things like preparing food or, <laughs> or cleaning your house or whatever. Um, and they would put 10 to 12 hours a day for foraging for food. They spend a lot mm. of time hunting around for food. And, of course, that's got to cost. They're burning energy looking for the stuff. So um, if we can make sure there's lots of, a good variety of macroinvertebrates, you know, the little bugs that live in in the waterways, then we'll have healthy platypus. But we'll have other things too. We'll have more fish and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, mm. uh, And interestingly, the, the good thing also is you, if you start to have a healthy stream, they also naturally start to improve water quality so that you're actually delivering this nice service to downstream because you're, you're basically treating water before it goes further down the stream. So... It's one of those projects that is motivated by this, you know, beautiful, cute organism, but it's got benefits for, you know, the whole ecosystem. Yeah. How will you know it's been successful and are there plans, if it is successful, to broaden it? Yeah, again, nice, really nice questions. Um, <laughs> well so, done, Daniel. Uh, uh, well, they, they're perfect. They set up uh, exactly where, where I want to take the discussion. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, the, how will we know? So we're researchers, so that's entirely our job. So we're going to meta, measure the flow regime. Um, so we'll actually have, you know, flow meters set up so we can measure the flow rate and we'll measure how that translates into what we call hydraulic environment or hydraulic habitat. So in other words, how quickly is the water moving? How deep is it? Because just just like us, you know, we need certain sort of conditions to live in comfortably and same with them they don't want water that's too quick but they don't want it too slow because then you get things like algal growth uh, so we'll measure things like that we'll then actually measure um we're going to set up little uh infrared camera traps that's going to be watching for platypus in the stream and every time it sees one it'll launch and take a little photo um so we'll know kind of where they're foraging um and importantly we'll also uh be uh, having lots of interviews with the community um, to see how they're reacting to this. You know, the idea to have a rainwater tank, that's great, but we also need to work with them very carefully to 
uh, make sure that they're comfortable with the idea that some water will get released from their tank in order to um, protect the platypus. So, you know, we'll be measuring how people are reacting. Um, and lastly, as you say, we're doing it at this sort of pilot scale. But the idea is if this is successful, this could become kind of a standard for new development. So when we're putting in rainwater tanks, they could you know, come automatically with this technology. Uh, what's nice about this technology, because you know, we optimise it, it doesn't uh, compromise the ability for that tank to supply water to the house. It has almost no impact. Uh, it's about 2% less water they get per year, so it's nothing. Uh, and yet it manages to, um, we hypothesise, manages to protect the ecosystem so it's yeah it's hopefully really cool at least that's what we uh told the arc in our research grant <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we deliver on what we we promised how are how are platypus numbers uh look they're um they it's probably fair to say they're finding it pretty tough and i'm not the platypus expert the the great there's a lot of great groups in the australian platypus uh, conservancy and melody serena in particular are the the ones i kind of look to but um in general, in urban areas, they're finding it pretty tough because that sort of urban stormwater runoff we talk about is really hard on platypus. It basically scours away all their habitat. They need nice kind of uh, undercut banks with trees over them to provide shade. And in urban areas, that gets all scoured away. So they're finding it pretty tough. And also with a sort of, you know, a harsher climate, I suppose, we're also finding that even in non-urban areas, they... Um, tend to have you know much reduced flows in a lot of per uh, periods um you know much more extended droughts and so that ends up drying up the habitat so overall it's a species that um we need to protect let's put it that way yeah can, yeah. can i ask maybe it's an ignorant question but i didn't know you keep referring to urban areas can you see platypuses in melbourne yeah so that's the that's what's exciting about this project so yeah you won't see them in the cbd no. <laughs> um uh, well there's a brand of shoes i think that have that name but um <laughs> Uh, not that I'm a, I'm really not qualified to talk about that. <laughs> um, uh, but you do tend to see them on those kind of what we call, we try to sound intelligent by using weird words, peri-urban, mm -hmm. um, those kind of sort of outer urban areas. So this, you know, Mombok Creek is that sort of Belgrave, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of area. And so you definitely see them there, but they're decreasing. And you even see some uh, all the way down to sort of, you know, Warrandyte and, and um maybe even some parts of North Ringwood. What will tend to happen, though, is they'll they go on quite long trips for their foraging to get food, but then they'll kind of go back up to the safer refuges. So sometimes mm -hmm. you see them in more urban areas and you think, oh, good, there's platypus there, but they're really just visiting to see if there's any food and then they go back up. But, yeah, mm -hmm. you, you can find them in some of those outer urban areas. And our goal, I suppose, is to allow that to still be the case in 20, 30, 40, 50 mm -hmm. years. Hopefully we can, hopefully we can succeed. Yeah. All right, we've been talking smart water storage with Professor of Urban Ecohydrology at the University of Melbourne, Tim Fletcher. And uh, it's such a brilliant project and very big of you, given that you have been defecated on by one of the subjects. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Tim. Melbourne's own Triple R. Well known to Triple R listeners, Dr Viom Sharma is a Melbourne GP working on the COVID-19 quarantine frontline and to give us his take on the take-up of vaccines in Australia, the radiotherapy co-presenter joins us now. Dr Sharma, welcome back to Breakfasters. Nice to be here. What, what do you make of the, the take-up so far? Well, it's been uh, slow uh, for the initial part, but I have to say in the last few months, uh, the, the actual rollout's been pretty fast in terms of uh, getting uh, a big rise in the amount of vaccine doses we're getting into this country. And people are really have been adopting it you know, fairly quickly. Um, now, there, there are certainly signs of concern, though. Um, so we know, for example, there's been a lot of controversy around AstraZeneca, and we've seen that affected in the numbers. And you know, we wish the uptake there was, was a bit better uh, by people. But on the whole, you know, when we look at what we call our utilisation rate, which is how many doses are actually available versus how many going into people's arms, uh, we're, we're doing okay. Uh, the concern, however, is that there are still, you know, while we're still quite early into the vaccination uh, race, let's just say, um, there are certainly a, a group of people who are either saying they do not want to be vaccinated at all or are unsure they want to be vaccinated. And I think that's the, uh, the, the concern at the moment, which is 
look, we're probably going to be vaccinating millions of us within the next few months, I'd say next two or three months. But then that core group of people who are unsure or don't want to be vaccinated, will we be able to, to, to convince you know, those parts of us? That's a bit of a challenge. Mm. What do you say to people who are on the fence? Well, it, you know, I think when people are on the fence, it's actually more important that firstly I listen to why they're on the fence rather than, than say anything. Because because usually they've got some good reasons. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think there's actually any good reasons left, really, uh, to, to not get vaccinated. But what I mean is that people, at least uh, most of the time, those on the fence, have valid concerns. So, you know, I've spoken to people who, like, very early on uh, have had concerns about safety that have been really you know, we've got the research now to say, actually, no, it's not early research anymore. It's pretty comprehensive research uh, that shows that the vaccines are safe and effective. Um, and then other people will, will often hear bits of misinformation from, from, from you know, YouTube videos and Facebook, and then I can go about kind of you know, dispelling that. Um, but, you know, other, other times people have just got misconceptions about um, you know, thinking that they won't get COVID if they just – you know, uh, keep their hands clean and, um, and and wear masks, which are all correct things to do. Uh, but, you know, I think this is the – when you ask me what do I tell people who are hesitant about all this, the, the new conversation that we have been having with people is that Delta variant spreads very fast, uh, which means that that kind of old concept of herd immunity where, you know, hey, if you just get mo- enough people vaccinated in the community – just won't get much of the disease popping up. Um, that used to be uh, – so that's that concept of herd immunity. That doesn't really apply anymore. This spreads way too quickly, which means the way we have to frame the debate or, uh, or the, the discussion with people is, look, what, what I'm trying to do here is convince you to get it vaccinated because your only other option is getting COVID. Yeah. So your concerns about the vaccines, they may be, you know, coming from, from well-founded uh, – causes, but they're probably not as big as you think, and I usually talk them through that, and then try to tell them that the alternative is not just keeping your hands clean thinking you can get away with COVID. The alternative is, once this country opens up, and it will open up, it's going to be getting COVID-19 without the vaccine. So that's the way I'm trying to frame these discussions at the moment. I think the thing that scared me at first was... Uh, was it the Queensland Chief Health Officer coming out about the AstraZeneca um, and it not, not being safe? Uh, I'm 39, so I'm just on the cusp of being eligible for Pfizer. So I was very hesitant um, to get the AZ. But then um, seeing the press conference and um, Victoria's Chief Health Health Officer, um, you know, saying that it was the right thing to do and that he would get it, um, that was enough to convince me. I actually got my uh, first jab of AZ on Monday. And it was pretty busy as well. Like, they... Um, yeah, lots of people my age and, and a lot younger as well going in there and getting the jab. But for me, and, and, and I'll be honest with you, I was also very anxious over the next few days and monitoring how I was feeling because I was just conscious of, I guess, how it's been um, described in the media. I, and I think this has been such a big thing. You've touched on a couple of things there. Firstly, I think how the media uh, has framed it, and I think some outlets have done an outstanding job. Uh, I actually think Triple R's done a brilliant job, uh, and others maybe not so much. The other thing is, isn't it funny how so much of how we make decisions personally comes down to the people we trust? And I think I think I'm like you, uh, and like a lot of Victorians, we really trust hearing things from our chief chief health officer. Yeah, um, and you know, it was so powerful for for him to frame it in the way he did, which is to say that um, you know if I had that choice, you know if I was 25 then i would get it and that's not the same as him saying go out and get it that's him acknowledging saying that this is an individual decision that people need to come to with astrazeneca we acknowledge there are risks and benefits but it's a perfectly rational thing to do to go out and get it and i i'll tell you right now there are a couple of my friends of me just like you that they went and got vaccinated i think if i hadn't already been vaccinated i think i would have done so yeah. as well and I think the, the good thing is with the Queensland CHO, she did initially frame it with, with those kind of concerns. And it's perhaps why we see higher rates of hesitancy in Queensland than we do elsewhere. But she's also kind of gone back on this a bit. Um, she said, instead of framing it as, you know, I don't want people who are younger people to have it, she's saying, no, look, I want people to have that discussion with their GP. So um, I, I think it's really important for, for you know, how do we convince uh, those of us who are not, uh, who are still kind of hesitating, 
I think it's really important for us to point them towards sources that they may trust. And for a lot of people, that's a GP. For a lot of people, it's not. For a lot of people, it's their chief health officer. Or for a lot of people, it's it's a family member or a friend they know who's a nurse or a doctor who's had these. Um, that's how you build trust. Uh, we know that um, there's going to be Moderna coming to Australia shortly um, and more Pfizer, hopefully, as well. Do we have a timeline for when that might be available to more people so that we can kind of overcome some of that hesitancy, so for maybe under 40s? Yeah, exactly right. And, so I've, and I think <laughs> that's the other thing, isn't it? Like, uh, I think a lot of the hesitancy, especially for the younger groups, is they're not anti-vaxxers or anything like that. It's just, well, they've been told to, you know, in theory, preferences vaccine when it's around, I think we'll get a lot of higher uptake. Um, so that's likely to come in... So September and October are the months where we are going to get just these massive shipments of Pfizer and then Moderna. Um, so I actually... I'm expecting some quite good uptake in, in people under the age of uh, 40. And uh, and then I think, honestly, I think by November, the, the only people who have left are going to be people who are going to be... You know, who've been quite radically anti-vax. And, and sure, there are people who've been sitting on the fence, but if you actually look at the numbers, um, the, the number of people who are not sure about getting vaccinated, that's been steadily been coming down. And nowhere has it come down more, uh, just the number of people who are you know, not willing to be vaccinated or unsure, than in New South Wales. Turns out when you have a big outbreak, people are actually quite sensible because they realise... I've got a risk of getting this. And uh, we've seen the, the, the rates of that kind of hesitancy drop by almost half in New South Wales over the last few months. What about the virus itself? We see in the news that children aged under nine are increasingly testing positive in New South Wales and there were 44 cases detected in 24 hours in young children. How concerning is this? I think it's very concerning. Um, I, I have to be honest here that there is still a lot of controversy about how much sicker Delta truly makes kids. However, I don't think we can deny the fact that, uh, in terms of the, in terms of the, the potential for transmission, uh, yes, Delta definitely uh, has been spreading more through schools and hence, you know, spreading back at home, etc. So. Uh, the, the risk of transmission from kids has certainly risen significantly. Uh, and not to mention, I think, uh, in a lot of paediatric units, particularly, for example, in, in the United States, we're seeing more and more kind of kids admitted. So I think this is uh, perhaps why there's been that push to approve the vaccine for kids over the age of 12. So that in, in Australia, the Therapy Goods Administration has now you know, al allowed that. That doesn't mean that kids can get vaccinated yet, but I think that's going to happen soon enough. And frankly, why not? Because at the end of the day, uh, what's going to happen is we'll hopefully get all adults vaccinated. The only people who won't have vaccinated are kids. And in, in the same way we start immunising kids from childhood, I think it's very likely we'll be doing that for, um, for COVID-19 at one point. So it's just a matter of time, I think, until we get there. To steal man a, an argument, uh, you know, what, what is the most persuasive argument about not getting the vaccine that you can still debunk or tackle reasonably? I think that, and I think it's a reasonable thing to do. I think the most persuasive reason I had previously heard was people saying, well, yes, I, I could get vaccinated then I, and I know they work, but there's no COVID around. People saying this repeatedly that, that my risk of getting COVID right now in Victoria or, you know, before this outbreak in New South Wales is actually pretty low. So what's the point of getting it? And, uh, and I think, you know, in and of itself, this makes sense in the short term. And if I were to pick the weakness of that argument, it is, well, firstly, things like New South Wales, which is to say that the Delta variant can get out of control very fast. But the bigger issue being we are going to open up at one point or another, be it 80% or be it when we reach out the natural limit of uh, how many people are going to take up the vaccine, we are going to open up at one point, and then it will not be a choice between getting vaccinated um, and, and not and just kind of playing it safe. Then it's genuinely going to come down to getting vaccinated or ultimately getting COVID-19 because that's the way the Delta variant spreads. Mm. There's one text here that's asking about risk factors for AZ in Victoria right now for those in their 30s, but I'm not sure if you're in a position to address that. Yeah, so look, it's a tricky one, but basically uh, the way that the uh, Immunisation Authority, ATAGI, has given this advice in terms of, the, I think, the, the risk-benefit of AstraZeneca for younger people, they've kind of said, well, you know, if, if 
there's a very small outbreak, which is what we're seeing in Victoria, well then, you know, your risk of getting uh, COVID are pretty low anyway, and uh, perhaps the the risks of of getting vaccinated, uh, you know, are, are a really worthy consideration, and maybe you can afford to wait. But I think that we're all seeing now there's a bit of a problem with that advice, which is by the time that there's enough COVID in the community that you 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 do wish you got vaccinated, it's a bit it's, it gets a bit late, mm. you know. So the, I think the the truth is that. Some of the advice I think even the authorities have given has been a little bit short-term. We're now seeing a lot of people, you know, you've heard about Brett Sutton, the CHO, even a lot of uh, uh, a lot of my friends who've just gone, look, I could sit and wait around until that risk rises. Uh, no, I think I'll just go get it. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Um, I think the more important thing is for people to understand that you know, sooner or later, in the next couple of months, we should all be looking to get vaccinated. And if you're concerned about AstraZeneca as a younger person, but then please go speak to your GP. Ask them about your your uh, your individual risk factors. I know for a fact that some people they've, they're actually found quite an obstructive discussion with their general practitioner. Then find someone else who can who can afford to have the conversation with you. Really important stuff to discuss. Well, Dr. Sharma, thanks for all your work, and we really appreciate your time this morning. Most welcome. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. <laughs>